The world around us is changing faster than ever before. before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome Welcome. Welcome. to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasu, your host. A few months ago, I was invited to participate in the Dynata Client Summit. In this episode, I bring to you a discussion where Gary Laban, the former CEO of Dynata, Jason Sobel, head of U.S. advisory at Evercore Partners, and myself discuss a range of topics around companies that are discussing the common threads that exist between those companies. We also talk about the future of data and insights, and what are the critical components to keep our industry thriving, and what are the things that we need to continue to pay special attention to. I want to give a special shout out to Paul Cadet, CEO of Dig Insights, for his participation as part of the audience. You'll hear some of the questions he asks and some of the insights he shares as well. I hope you learned something. I know I did. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you guys for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to be here. Before we begin, I think it would be great if you could just take a couple moments to sort of maybe not literally, but tell us how you got here. <laughs> we'll assume the other part of that, but it would be really good to get a little bit of your background and then we can jump in a little bit to this particular theme on reinventing and reinvesting. And I think when folks uh, hear you both speak, you'll understand the latter term uh, very well and how it's applicable here. So my name is Seema Vasa. Gary, thanks for inviting me to be part of this panel. I really appreciate it. I have a little bit of a different past in that I've been a practitioner of research early in my career. I worked on the supplier side and then also had experience on the client side at IBM, understanding how people use information. Thereafter, I worked at the MPD group and I went into becoming an entrepreneur And now my latest gig is doing advisory services and investment banking through Oberon Securities. I also have a podcast. Excellent. Thank you. Sure. Jason. And I've been doing investment banking, mergers and acquisitions for about 25 years, solely in information, media, and marketing. And I was not an operator. The thing that's least relevant here is I was a singer-songwriter before that. So not very relevant. Wow. And is that why you're in investment banking now? That's exactly why I'm in investment banking. <laughs> 25 years and 30 pounds ago. I didn't see you in the record store. I saw you on the sidewalk. Is that... <laughs> exactly. Well, good. Well, excellent. And that's terrific. We've been talking a lot about, in this particular economy and in, you know, frankly, post-COVID, this idea of continuing to thrive despite any headwinds and almost sort of leveraging them oppositely to create tailwinds to drive forward. And I think in any environment, there are always companies that figure out how to prevail regardless of the externals. And I'd love to get your opinion on this and you know the common threads that really exist among companies that are thriving, particularly in this environment as well as in any rapidly changing environment. Yeah, I'll share a couple of things. Not surprising, we've all been talking about it, is 
you know, leadership employee experience is critical in terms of activating and motivating people to feel inspired to do good work, good quality work. We've all heard about quiet quitting. We've heard about, you know, there is certainly a mental, a mental component after COVID and really looking at the entire person and their life to make them feel inspired to do work. And I think it's really also the leaders that are changing. It's not command and control leadership anymore. It's more about understanding where people are and meeting them there and motivating them to do better. I think the other piece there is also being able to understand intergenerations because there is a workforce that is very different than the workforce many of us are used to. And during this time when talent is so critical, how do you really maximize, you know, the value and the experience for those employees and, you know, really get the best for everybody? It's really win-win, which I know we talk about, but it truly has to be win-win. Otherwise, it doesn't work. I also would say, you know, when it's not about surviving, it is about thriving. And it's so interesting when times are good, you know, you debate, you argue, you present different case studies. But I really believe the companies that focus in this environment are the companies that focus. They place their bets and they focus on those priorities and they tie that to the employees and making sure that everybody's aligned. So those are a couple of companies. uh, Have you seen where companies have, as a result of that, maybe changed their organizational structures to make that focus happen? Yes. I think that organizational structure and also function to a certain degree and really kind of looking at core business And how are they going to grow that core business? And what are the resources that are going to focus on, let's say, the bet for the next 12 to 18 months versus, you know, sometimes everybody wants to be involved in everything and you don't want to hurt people's feelings and you just become a lot more crisp. That's what I've seen. I think you covered it quite well. I take it slightly similar, but embellish a bit. One is on the talent side Mm -hmm. and inspiration. It's really the talent development. And in these times of challenge, a lot of companies who do thrive are still laser focused on talent development, whereas those that I've seen struggle, the hunkering down, the focus, they lose that perspective. They look, they all of a sudden focus often means short term, Mm -hmm. get through this. And you can't equate the two. The other thing I would say is focus as well, and I couldn't agree more, it is about focused, but it's still innovation. Mm -hmm. You know, what Tiffany and what Tom talked about, about being fearless. Um, My teenage daughter's school, their motto is go forth unafraid. And I think companies that I see thriving Stay focused, but challenge their employees to innovate Mm -hmm. and to be fearless and to go forth unafraid. I think those are the companies that, again, it leads to talent development, it leads to inspiration, and it leads to a thriving culture. So we're talking about that, and we're we're talking about it sort of from our perspective, and you all are, you Mm -hmm. know, represent buyers. How do buyers see that? How do you think that, so when, do they recognize, appreciate business buyers, that is, and, and investors? I'd be interested to hear you. Yeah, I mean, I think more than ever now, um, investors and buyers are looking for teams that can hunker down and focus and deliver on either value for shareholders, value for, you know, the buyers. We were just talking that we're seeing there's a ton more concern about risk and uncertainty. And, you know, currently doing a cap raise and people... Investors are just saying way too much, asking for way too much and too many priorities. 
focus and let's hunker down a little bit and, and actually stage gating the investment more so now in terms of you hit this milestone, we'll release a little bit more later. When you look at it 12, 18 months ago, we saw all kinds of cap raises for a s similar businesses. Very nice. Thank you. Beyond the employees sort of in thinking about how businesses thrive through this rapidly changing and, and frankly kind of exiting, I say that optimistically, COVID environment, what things other than sort of focusing on the employees, what is number two and three, if you will, um, in that? I guess in addition to employees, it's the products themselves. And if you think about an information company, research company, and the data, um, data is rapidly changing. It's the evolution of data from being what I would call descriptive data, kind of what happened to predictive data. You heard predictive analytics, right? You know, what's going to happen? And really prescriptive, right? Which is, what do I do about it? And what that means, the companies that are thriving in the information services world that I work a lot with are more and more infusing AI, analytics, technology to move up the value chain from descriptive and the, sort of the data dump truck to the prescriptive, which is, what do I do about it? And that requires a lot more data of all different types fused together, aggregated, synthesized, integrated in real time to form the most accurate picture. Because if someone's going to, if your client's going to make a bet on it, <laughs> a real monetary bet uh, with the action that you're recommending, you hope it's right. And so that's really the companies thriving that have moved and think of their business as much as a software company as they are a data company. Yeah, I just elaborate on that as well, is that they're also empathetic to what the clients are going through. And so they're not necessarily just selling their world of data, but being more consultative and understanding what are the other data assets they can infuse into that prescriptive recommendation and insights. Right. So expanding, I mean, that touches on creating a more refined deliverable as well as expanding the application yeah. by connecting the services to or potentially connecting them to more things. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is there's companies that are now looking at a layer of software that allows them to democratize a ton of data within an organization. And I've been seeing more tech companies coming in and trying to be the interface between different users of data and trying to aggregate all this data into the platform to speak to other people. And there's tons of implications to that. But so I see a little bit of a bifurcation in terms of focus. But for companies that probably sit here, it's more of that broader expansion of what they're offering in terms of a deliverable and analysis and insights. I'll be, you know, share my experience. Yeah. I personally felt that it was maybe a little bit of heresy when I first entered this, you know, the business that I'm part of today because there was a lot of conflict about using the data we had beyond the original application for which it was produced. And I think that today that is in for all businesses, it's sort of in the, in the room today, in the sector in general, it's, it's in the rearview mirror because the ability for us to amortize the data not only into a broader application, but also to create, get closer to the value proposition of why you're looking at this data to begin with, which is ultimately to understand it, to generate an insight, to lead to an action, which ultimately, mm -hmm. as Tiffany said, you know, if you're not not-for-profit, you're, you're selling. So ultimately to get to the cash register ringing, and it feels like that's, if we continue to be collectively 
methodical, methodical about moving that way, mm-hmm. we get closer to that, you know, that, that revenue production opportunity, and we have a bigger addressable market for all of us. Is that you see it similarly, or? Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it, it also brings about, you know, more scrutiny as a result of that because we're moving into different functional areas and applications where maybe we didn't really go after collectively. I do see that as a broader ecosystem and even application in terms of, you know, activation potentially. And we deal with, we talked about this, we deal with then issues relating to privacy and permissioning. Well, I think that's the next step, right? And what happens is we, the other side of that opportunity is the fact that we have to make sure that we're prepared for it because I think the sector, we have generally been able to remain, I would say, relatively. I say that from experience. I came out of originally the credit reporting business, so if you want to talk about regulation. (laughs) And so I think we've stayed relatively unregulated in many ways because the sources of the data are permissioned, they're double verified, they're opted in. But as we move into applications that I think Tiffany did a good job of just describing sort of the point of sale scenario where somebody who comes in wanting you to use their data might feel a little bit, um, feels you weird. know, uh, feels yeah. weird, feels a little creepy yeah. because now you, you know, how did you connect all those right. points? So just when you were saying, how do you connect various and different and, and maybe not only internal but external data points, it prompts the question. Mm-hmm. And so how we have to start to think about that, I think, as a sector and, and how we're going to deal with that. And the only thing I would add is I think you're, as you said, getting closer to the action of the insights. It opens up the TAM and the revenue opportunity. One of the things I've seen when you talk about, I think the question was around thriving companies beyond employees, the products. One of the things I've seen companies do quite well and others not do well is evolve their business with that migration towards the decision. What I mean by that is there are data companies that are just data. Right? They aggregate data. Maybe it's proprietary. Maybe it's proprietarily aggregated from public sources that you can piece together and make it interesting. And they have domain expertise. But as you get closer to the client's decision making, that's when you need technology. That's when you need analytics. And you need services, right? Mm-hmm. Because when you're talking about the company and your client, they want service. Mm-hmm. They want customer service. They want help. And I find a lot of data companies or technology companies resist almost that tech-enabled service layer. But it's such an critical component. And I talk to a lot of my clients about you know, the four components that make a good business in information services. It's the data, it's the technology, it's the domain expertise, right? And it's the services. And again, I think if you're at this end of the spectrum, you can get away with just being a data and you know, having domain expertise, crunch data, send it out and see what they do with it. As you move closer to this end of the spectrum, which is where the TAM and the revenue opportunities are and your actioning decisions, I think you have to have a service layer. And a lot of companies that thrive evolve that, and some that don't will fall. Do you think the services layer activates the use of the data? Yeah. And, and that's a critical component for that to happen. Uh, for me, I, I think. Yeah, I right. agree with you. Yeah. But I think we all go in phases in the industry right. where, you know, it's got to be SaaS. There's no service. It's got to be tech. There's no service. But you're right. Clients don't want to do a lot of heavy lifting. And to make sure that they get value out of how we deliver the data, there is a service component. To that point, so many SaaS businesses have to have a service, a set of service personnel to implement it. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, you often see that that model gets sold off or because it you know, there's a belief that it tarnishes the multiple associated with the software in and of itself. And so if you have all these people doing the service on top of it, they still need it to happen. So they 
engage value-added resellers to yeah. help sort of deploy and implement the product itself. So certainly that, that happens. I want to change a little bit. As we consider sort of the reinvesting and reinvention, I guess, how do companies deliver that value to investors? Is there a lens through which you sort of think about that? You know, investors look to drive long-term shareholder values, right? That's what they're in the business of. Long-term shareholder value means you're creating something sustainable. It has terminal value, right? Maybe not the first few years you're building, but at some point there is massive terminal value to use a discounted cash flow investment banking term. So what is that? That's basically a moat, right? What's the moat you've built? And that's what investors try to assess. And you can look at different sources of moats. You can look at if people, business school, Michael Porter's Five Forces. You can, there was a great book I read by Bruce Green, Greenwald called uh, Competition Demystified. And he basically boiled barriers to entry down to three things. You can argue with it, but I think it's pretty simple to understand. One is economies of scale which is fixed costs, right? You spend a bunch, mm -hmm. you have fixed costs that you can reinvest into more innovation, more products. Another economies of scale is network effects. Think Facebook. Every user makes the Facebook product better or Instagram. So both of those give you scale economies. The second is customer captivity, the demand side. Is there an alternative? Are there switching costs? Are there search costs? Do you have trust? What is that sort of customer captivity point that gives you a, a moat. And then the third is the cost side. You know, do you have refined best practices? Do you have a cost advantage? Do you, do you have patents? Is there government regulation that protects something you do? But something on the cost side that makes it cheaper and easier for you to create a barrier. And I find the best companies have more than one. One can be defeated, but when you've got two or three that are really strong, they can actually self-reinforce each other. So when investors look at information companies, they're really looking for those barriers to entry and the sustainable shareholder value they can create. Interesting. So putting you on the spot, and I guess you can put me back on it because that's all fair. <laughs> if you think about your business in Evercore in terms of those three sort of potential barriers or, or you know, USPs, how do you think your business stands up against its competition? Well, we stand up well against competition, but from a barriers to entry perspective, we're pretty low. We're a peer services organization, right? Yeah. We traffic in our intellectual capital. And so if you think about, we have elements of each in investment banking or advisory. We have a little bit of scale economies, right? Because deals beget deals. My intellectual capital and my team, as it grows, we have shared ideas and we can attack a sector and we have the revenue to reinvest in more people and more products. A lot of products don't generate revenue, but they give our clients a much more holistic advice. We have debt advisory and stuff we may not make money on but versus M&A. So I think there is some scale economies, but nothing that couldn't be mm -hmm. replicable. I think we have some customer captivity in that now we're at a stage where you know boards don't get fired for hiring Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and, and in some cases, Evercore. And so I think there's a trust that we treat people's information with great confidence mm -hmm. and confidentiality. So I think there's a trust that's somewhat customer captive. But it's again, you can hire a bank one deal and hire another bank the next deal uh, if you're a company. So I wouldn't say it's a strong mode. And then the third on the cost side, I mean, we have refined best practices. We have a way of doing things that probably allow us to be more efficient, to get to the right answers better, to produce things, a process, because we've been doing it for so long. But again, not completely defensible because I can lose a whole team to another investment bank. So right. we have elements of each, but honestly, our barriers are pretty low. Uh, it makes sense. How, I'm interested, you know, and by the way, I would love to hear from someone in the audience. If you think about your own business, how do you think you stack up, you know, with those areas? Anybody want to uh, want to raise a hand and volunteer? 
All we see are bright lights in the back, so I just saw him. <laughs> yeah, actually, having uh, just gone through a process ourselves, you know, I think it was very interesting and enlightening for us to realize that we did have a differentiated offering versus our competitors. We have our services component. We have a technology offering. We've been creating moats around our technology offering and obviously layering in as much as we can the execution of our engagements through our own tech platform. And by doing so, we're you know, improving our processes, improving our margins. We've been profitable since the beginning. And I think after we've gone through that process and really highlighted the successes that we've had over the last 12 years, it really became apparent to us that everybody in the investment community was looking at us as, uh, wow, you are actually differentiated without us even knowing it. But it re reinforced that the bets that we made early on really did pay off. The bets in technology, the bets in automation, improving our processes, and then layering on amazing customer and client services on top of that, kind of just to your point, has really, I think, put us in a really good position. That's terrific. So do you now go to market with those advantages sort of in your creds? Is that as a, I got the impression, or maybe I'm inferring that that was a learned process through the liquidity process you just went. Yeah, I think it was a validating component yeah. through the process. And it's always been part of our you know, communication strategy that we do have that capability and offering. But I think we're doing it more now. We're accentuating a lot of those points because it wasn't for us something that we had really been aware of having not had that outsider perspective. Mm -hmm. So even then, a really good process to go through to have the, you know, the event to kind of synthesize that That's right. where uh, it can really help. So if we think about... How about Dineto, Gary? I think... I was hoping you would. Uh, <laughs> I should have answered, asked the next question quicker. <laughs> well, you know, from a scale standpoint, I mean, we went about a journey years ago to create the scale. So I think that we accomplished some of that. But as we continue on that journey, and I think about extending our applications throughout the marketing services spectrum, so where we might have scale in the space in which we started, the TAM for the space in which we want to continue to serve our clients is now 10 times as large. And we don't have that scale there as much because uh, the competitive sets is frankly, a little bit bigger. As far as supply, you know, I think that we are known for a number of components that make up our deliverables that are unique to our business, have been harder to replicate. But we, to be very, you know, frank with the group, we run that, you know, I think about that with a very paranoid mm -hmm. perspective, which is for how long will some of those, you know, when do we obsolete that for the next generation of unique components? Um, and we're trying to do that now and continue to reinvent that because consumer behavior changes. And I say this, of course, when the business was started long before I, I arrived and digitized and really, you know, brought um, insights to sort of, or at least the creation of them online, there's nothing else to do in the web. So, you know, our members were thrilled to be able to brag to their friends that they had a, an online of experience of, of any sort. Right. I remember when I did my first banking transaction, and that was when the company sort of created some of those, um, that component. But now it's, you know, the quest for, for individuals, business, mm -hmm. and business professional and consumers' time is just so hard to get. And so we have to, to reinvent that. And so, you know, kind of to your point, I think that, that we are well positioned, but I think that as we 
enter new markets. And as we think about things a little bit differently, we have to continue. We can't rest on that piece. We have to continue to figure out how to win in each of those areas. And I do think just, look, it's, it's great. And the comment about your process and how it was eye-opening and how it was positioned. When we talk about reinventing and reinvesting, it's really often helpful to look at it through that lens because are you investing in a product that embeds you more with your client, Mm -hmm. right? Really integrated with the workflow. Well, that is customer captivity, right? It makes it harder for them to switch, Mm -hmm. right? Are you investing in something that's a new behind-the-scenes technology, infrastructure, architecture that will lower your costs, that will make it harder for anyone else to compete and make money in because you can always for a while, you know, beat them up and make it really hard for them to lose a ton of money, well, that's worthwhile, right? Or are you, so it's really helpful when you think about the theme of this conversation, mm-hmm. the conversation around reinvesting. What are you reinforcing? What's that long-term sustainable value? It's often very helpful to think of it through that lens. So when we think about thriving companies, what's one of the most critical components that maybe we haven't talked about that we can, we, you overlook? Right, and so you're 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 looking at a business from the outside and saying, is this a winning business? Is this, I mean, as an investor, it, you're looking for how do I make money in it, you know, and how do I become instead of a buyer or a seller, and what's the path for that as an investor? I think a couple of things. First of all, it goes back to the value that's being created. So if an investor is investing in a company, let's say they'll make their numbers, find that people look at the worst case scenario and see, is there something here that has value that ultimately I can recoup my investment in some way, shape, or form? In terms of other things that might be overlooked for, as we sit here and an investor might be looking at, I still think it comes back to agility and the ability to respond. Listen, look at our world today. It is changing. Every day you wake up, there's something new that's happening. And I wouldn't minimize the ability. It's like what you said in the top of the conference, it's being agile, it's being flexible, it's being creative. And sometimes you can't put that in numbers, but you can show that through experience through the course of history of your company. Yeah. Something that's overlooked by thriving companies is they overlook what's around the corner. They get lazy, they get comfortable, and they miss what's right in front of them. Mm-hmm. And you know, to, to one company that did it right they failed forward. They were fearless, to use uh, Tiffany and, and Tom's comment, was Google. If you actually go through Google's, one of the most successful companies in the world, actually has all three barriers to entry that I mentioned in spades. Don't compete with Google search, trust me. Yeah. But that's about the only thing they've gotten right. If you actually look at all the other things they've done, they failed miserably. One of the best ones I remember is they spent so much money on Google video. I bet you nobody remembers that. When they realize that they don't know how to do it, they bought YouTube for $2 billion, mm-hmm. right? So they tried. They tried. They saw it coming. They tried to build it themselves. They couldn't get it to work, and they bought uh, YouTube. Mark Zuckerberg recently admitted he didn't see what was around the corner. He, he made a comment, I'm going to butcher it, but for all the success of Facebook, and he saw WhatsApp coming, he bought that, and Instagram, and all, he kept buying the things that were competing with him. The one he missed was he didn't realize that people would use social media not just to discover other friends and what they're up to, but actually to use it as a discovery tool for third-party content. Mm -hmm. It just never occurred to him that that's how people would use social media. Lo and behold, TikTok, right? And he just never thought about it. I thought it was only to connect people. And he admitted that, that he just missed it. So I think thriving companies can fail to see what's around the corner and ask themselves that question. I'm sure you do too. We talk to a lot of sellers who are, they're not lazy, but they're tired. And I think that's the other piece of, you know, not just 
getting comfortable, but really figuring out how can they examine what's around the corner instead of just saying, I'm here and I'm tired and I want to sell. Like it doesn't happen. We always talk to sellers and say, it doesn't happen like that. You, you need to continue to go forward. You need to continue to build your business. And ultimately when the time's right, it'll be a good time to sell. Absolutely. And not, you can't come to the table as to exhausted. Sell. You, you have to come to the table to go to the next level yes. and to do that. It, Incidentally, unrelated to the last statement we just made, and you referenced Google, I think I just read that they exited the Google survey. I business, saw that too. Yep. That's right. Which uh, was interesting. Yeah. And when they came out, they created such fear, uncertainty, and doubt for this industry. Right, to your point, right? Yeah. You have, they have all of this technology, and they can suck up a data company yep. like that because of their size. And you know, my, my guess is they found out it's not that easy. It's not, easy. It's not, it's it not that easy. The insights that people need and want are complex. They take some understanding, they take curation, they take ultimately an execution of that insight to some sort of action, and not all of that can yeah. happen in the Google ecosystem, I guess, or as they've maybe set it up. And there's a quality component as well, yeah. Let me skip and say, so make some bold predictions. Tell me about our industry. What does the future hold for us? You know, listen, I think our, if we continue to be fearless and be bold, I think we can expand the application of our information to a broader sector. I think that will require deeper investment to help understand issues of regulation and privacy. But as we democratize data within enterprises and tools are enabling more people to use that data, I can't see it not happen. I can't see this ecosystem expanding. So I think that's one thing. I think the second thing I look at our industry and say, there's a huge tech component to what we do and how we deliver data, but there's still a lot of intellectual need and curiosity to help clients use the information. And I think we'll continue to see more of that as well. And, you know, again, we talked about the bifurcation. I think using data to inform decisions across different parts of the decision-making process, marketing, product, user experience, it's just, it will be the language that companies use to drive decisions. Very nice. That's a very optimistic. Are you just as optimistic? I'll give you two extremes, just to be... <laughs> of course you uh, are. Of course. Provocative. Uh, provocative. <laughs> so my optimistic view, and I do believe this, is, is we're in the second inning of a, a data revolution. And first of all, we all talk about data driving decisions. It's very... The spectrum is wide in terms of industry and how adoptive, if you will, how it has been adopted truly driving decisions. I was talking to someone in the automotive industry before. I do a lot in healthcare and real estate. I mean, real estate is like 15 years behind auto. Auto is 15 years behind financial. So I think a lot of industries are scratching the surface and the opportunity is huge. The second thing that makes me quite excited is broadly in the marketing ecosystem, how quickly we've moved many ways from brand-centric to customer-centric, right? We're in a world of one-to-one -one marketing at scale in real time and with extreme personalization. And for all the achievements for everyone in this room supporting that effort, I still think we're in the second inning. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity to have really efficient and effective one-to-one -one marketing at scale in real time uh, using data, I think the sky's the limit for all of us in the room. And that's what makes me excited. The scary part, if you will, is to tie it back to something we started, it's this integration of technology and data. And one of the fears I have is the competitors 
are not just in this room and people you think about. The competitors are Google and Microsoft and Apple. Mm -hmm. And they spend more in capital expenditures and R&D than any of you make in revenue probably combined. And if you talk to any executive at Microsoft, which I do, they will tell you they're all about owning the glass. When somebody wakes up and they turn on their computer, they're using a Microsoft product, everything, right? They own the glass, they own the workflow, they own the client. You wanna dump your data into their system, great. But every time you use a Microsoft product, they're creating so much data exhaust, stuff that you will never see, Mm -hmm. that's proprietary to them, that will give them a leg up as a data company to customize their owning the glass. So one of the things I fear, again, to be contrarian, is your new competitive set are the tech giants. Mm -hmm. And those tech giants will come down market into the data world as you fight and need to start infusing, and you'll never outspend them on any piece of software. So what does that world look like 20 years from now? That's the scary look. I think it's well said, right, uh, that we can feed into the glass, mm-hmm. but who, can you own the glass? whoever owns the glass may win. Uh, really you know, drives that relationship and has that inability to be displaced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, certainly that's, I saw Tiffany's slide when I walked in, Salesforce. I think that's their strategy, right? Own the glass. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not going to end there, by the way. <laughs> That's not where we need to. But I will come back. You know, my perspective on that is much closer to Seamus. I think you're all wrong. No. Yeah. I was being provocative for a reason. As I said, I believe um, we're in the second inning of a data revolution. And I think that, too, in the way that where we think about the extension of the data to drive some sort of insight that ultimately takes an action that leads to a sale, I'm getting beyond that, even that sector, into financial services or healthcare or insurance, and not generating insights in those spec- in those sectors, but generating outcomes, for example, in healthcare. And anecdotally, we were part of a process during the pandemic to help the CDC understand where hotspots were in the United States, COVID hotspots, because as the vaccines were being produced, they wanted to figure out, they didn't just want to deploy by population density, but where is more COVID? And so into every one of our surveys, we asked the que- symptoms question for ev- everybody, you know, completing a survey every day. And we were able to kind of create that heat map, no mm-hmm. pun intended, to help. And I think it, you know, that's an application that, yes, we generated an insight, but really it was about how do we better a healthcare outcome? And so I think if we as a sector, we can have the temerity and the uh, agility and, frankly, the fearlessness to think more broadly about that, we can absolutely be relevant across many, many different places. More than relevant, essential, are. right? I mean, yeah. if you think about healthcare, the world's moving towards, you know, consumer direct, consumer pay, right? I mean, there's a whole data revolution needed to optimize that whole process that for decades, you know, never really had. So yeah. I, I agree. I, I think we're going to be essential. It does go back to that one fundamental premise of trust with the consumer. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be done, for sure. Obviously, I'm optimistic. But the more we gain that trust, the more applications we can participate in. For sure. Seema, Jason, thank you both for being here. Thanks thank for you. sharing uh, your thank perspectives you. on this. I want to thank you uh, on behalf of all of Dynata and the audience. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very thank much. You. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. 
We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.